This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. It's been a busy last couple of weeks in the auto industry. We have the ongoing issues with Tesla this week, which may or may not include an investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission about failing to let investors know of a deadly deadly crash. We have the fallout from the VW settlement. We have more news on the push for driverless cars. And we also have an interesting story I saw about Fiat Chrysler paying hackers to try and fix the bugs in their vehicles. Wharton Management Professor John Paul McDuffie joins us. He's the director of the program on vehicle and mobility innovation at Wharton's Mac Institute. John Paul, hope you're enjoying your summer, sir. Uh, I am. Thanks, Dan. Great to, to talk to you. Great to have you. Uh, we didn't get the chance to talk to you uh, b- about the VW settlement, so let's dig into that first. The numbers, uh, y- you know, I, I, a couple people have said that that weren't really surprised about the total amount. How about you? Well, when people started projecting what the cost might be, it depended on some of their assumptions. Once you assumed buyback and thought of what a reasonable buyback would be, you quickly got to those kinds of numbers uh, for the U.S. Of course, in the U.S., they only had 500,000 of these vehicles, and that's why the drama in Europe now is whether VW will be able to get away with its claim that it can do the remediation of the, I think, close to 11 million cars with those diesel engines in Europe uh, in a much cheaper way. Uh, the the ongoing possibility of civil suits by by people here in the United States, uh, how, how great of a possibility is that? Well, you know, the U.S. does have a class action law that allows class action suits, and uh, those are often successful. It's Hard for me to know uh, the exact nature of how those would be put together, and I suppose the claim would have to be that whatever Volkswagen is doing uh, for the owners of those vehicles isn't enough or that there was misrepresentation, fraud, various things. Um, I think that's another legal difference with Europe where they don't have the, the laws allowing class action suits. You know, but there are also going to be state suits. I saw that I think VW settled with California. California was where some of the original findings of this uh, defeat device or this cheat software was was made. And I think California asked basically for a bunch of money to cover their legal costs for the whole thing and some for funds for sustainable vehicles. But imagine that many different states could come forward with their own suits for various reasons. Yeah, Volkswagen's not done with this. What about uh, with everything that Tesla is having to deal with, especially in the last two weeks or so? Uh, this is it, it's a company that is so interesting because of the level of innovation that they're trying to bring to the auto industry. Uh, yet you have these couple of crashes linked to this autopilot feature, uh, which obviously goes again to having all of this new technology and whether or not it all works 100 percent of the time. Well, you know, there is a lot of exciting developments with the technology. Uh, there's a long road to go, to to uh, use a sorry metaphor there, before it's actually a fully implemented system. Uh, Tesla, as they often have, pushed the envelope a bit in claiming that Autopilot was ready for use by drivers and uh, you know, still with a lot of cautions about how that system was intended to be used. Um, you know, anybody following this issue has known that at some point there would be this kind of fatal accident. 
and the question has been, you know, would would one or more fatal accidents be uh, uh, what people call a Hindenburg moment uh, for historians of transportation? When the Hindenburg, the Zeppelin blew up, that yep. pretty much uh, ended the prospects for Zeppelin as a new form of, of transportation. I think probably the difference is that we all know that cars kill people, and uh, cars driven by humans kill about 30,000 people a year in the U.S. So uh, in a way, the the cost-benefit or even the, the kind of public health uh, argument here is going to be, can these new technologies do better than human drivers? And there's a lot of reason to think yes. So you know, will the what will the public and regulatory tolerance for deaths as this technology is improved and rolled out be? John Paul McDuffie joins us from the Wharton School, uh, Management Professor, Director of the Program on Vehicle and Mobility Innovation. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. The interesting thing about Tesla is that Elon Musk has, has this vision, and I heard the, the comment earlier today uh, on a TV show this morning that said, you know, he is he truly is an entrepreneur, and he has this vision, and he's not going to deviate from that vision. And, and that's that's an interesting statement in terms of maybe getting to know Elon Musk a little bit more than probably a lot of people really don't know him at this point. Well, that's right, and he's he has been... Uh, pretty consistent in that regard. So l- releasing this autopilot feature a lot earlier than than other manufacturers would, he's already said that they will not withdraw it, um, given even with these recent crashes. He intends for them to redouble their education efforts. He, he points out that they do warn drivers you can't you can't keep your hands off the wheel for more than a moment or two. You have to you have to check in regularly. And, um, uh, you know, I think a, a view from Silicon Valley and a software-driven view is that the way software gets better is that you, you test it and you find bugs and you fix the bugs. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, leaving aside to the extent you can the, the loss of human life in this case, uh, you know, a sort of uh, a view of how software improves would say, well, you're going to have you know, bigger failings and smaller failings, uh, but finding them is the key so you can fix them. I guess the, 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 the part of this that's going to be the, the, the focal point is the, the crash, uh, as you mentioned, down in Florida, where the top of the car, I guess, was sheared off under, going underneath a tractor trailer. Uh, and the fact that, I guess, a couple of the accounts say that the car, after it went under the tractor trailer, was still at a high rate of speed. Uh, and I guess the, the, the focus will be on uh, on disengaging the autopilot uh, and, and how that is done and where the failure was in that case? Yes. Well, the, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, NHTSA, has uh, sent a request to Tesla for detailed information about how autopilot works. And the two big questions for the Florida accident were why was the truck not detected? Yeah. And then even once the erroneous, uh, you know, failure to brake for the truck uh, was uh, occurred, why did the car continue with full accelerator until it crashed into something as opposed to noticing that the roof had been ripped off? Um, both of those do seem like uh, pretty big flaws in the software. And uh, Tesla has said they'll cooperate fully with this um, investigation. You know, it's it's an interesting issue about 
uh, how regulation will proceed here. Uh, mm-hmm. There hasn't been any regulation around the issue of self-driving cars, which has permitted a lot of this early experimentation, uh, which I think has been good. Various states have passed laws, most of which have been to say, we're going to allow this until we understand it better. And um, But you also hear from manufacturers that we need some guidelines that are the same from state to state. So there's, in a sense, a uh, request for consistent federal guidelines in the U.S. to make it easier for manufacturers to develop things. So this tension between you know, innovation by each company and standardization for, uh, you know, both to help manufacturers who have to prepare products for all 50 states, but mm-hmm. also to uh, ensure public safety and ensure understanding. Uh, that's what's going on right now. Seemingly, though, you would think that now that that this issue has kind of, you know, gotten media attention, that somehow, some way, people on Capitol Hill are going to try and, you know, get their pound of flesh or at least, you know, bring people from Tesla forward to kind of understand this technology, whether or not they wait for the NHTSA report uh, or not, I guess, at this point. Uh, yes. And, and you know, we'll, we'll see whether Tesla's cooperation with NHTSA is um, full enough, quick enough to be satisfying or to make it look like they're they're trying to, uh, you know, avoid that kind of of scrutiny. Uh, You know, I I wanted to raise a a broader kind of strategic issue that gets discussion in the engineering circles around this. Um, Various frameworks from various places, but NHTSA has adopted one of them, talk about different levels of automation for vehicles. So uh, many of the features that are available in lots of cars now, um, you know, reminding you that you're drifting out of a lane and cruise control, things like that, are level uh, are level one or level two. Uh, then there's level three, where the driver is supposed to be ready to jump in at any moment and, again, take control, but can sometimes allow the vehicle to take control. Level three is where autopilot is, mm-hmm. uh, that Tesla feature. Level four is where the vehicle is truly autonomous, and then level five has to do with um, a sort of smart infrastructure that can also communicate with the vehicle. So there's a big debate out there about whether it's a good idea to aim for level three at all mm-hmm. or to skip over it and go straight from two to four and acknowledge that level four is um, a level where you probably, at least at first, have to have um, dedicated separate uh, roadways and things like that. Sure. So Google has said uh, when they went to these small pods uh, that have nothing in them but a stop button and a go button, uh, we think level three is not going to work. It's too much to expect the vast array of human drivers to uh, click back to attention, even with lots of beeps and warnings, right. and, and that's too dangerous. How, how then How then do you go to, to that level four with the autonomous vehicles without having the level three? Well, essentially, you have to uh, either have to get to a much better state of the technology, and that includes a much more controlled or better understood uh, set of data about the environment. So what Google has said right now uh, is that these, these I don't know if pods is the word they use, but I've cer- certainly seen people call it that, um, can't go more than 25 miles an hour and need to be used in a controlled environment. So they, they're they looking for cities to partner with who would set up some dedicated 
lanes, maybe with a divider for these. Um, and they're trying to teach them to do things like uh, recognize bicycles yeah. and bicycle hand signals and, and things like this. An equivalent might be at high speed to, um, you know, have dedicated lanes on, on highways, which are only for these vehicles. There's obviously going to be a massive period when technology uh, is diffusing and there's some vehicles that have the latest and some vehicles that don't have any of it. And Google's preference and Tesla's preference so far has been make the prime vehicle smart enough to take care of everything else. Mm -hmm. But the real safety comes uh, perhaps at a point that vehicles can communicate with each other, all vehicles can, or even with roadways, you know, that there's kind of smart infrastructure, vehicle-to-infrastructure, they call that, as well as vehicle-to-vehicle communication to supplement what the single vehicle can pick up on its own. I happen to see the, the story you mentioned about uh, about Google and the driverless car now being, uh, they're testing about being able to recognize cyclists and recognize the hand motions by cyclists. Delve into that a, a bit more because I find it interesting that, you know, obviously we have sensors that warn us already on cars. If you're backing up and you're getting close to another car, how are they recognizing hand motions from from somebody that's riding a bike on the street? Yeah, I'm I'm curious to learn a little bit more about exactly what uh, what type of sensing technology they're using. Uh, part of what interested me uh, from the same story was the the learning feature, which of course is an artificial intelligence feature. That if a car is following a single cyclist, it's actually trying to figure out what that cyclist is using as hand signals. <laughs> oh, so wow. that if you're behind that person for you know a few blocks you get better and better at knowing what they do to mean right turn, left turn, something like this. That's, that's kind of mind-boggling. Um, I mean, one of the debates is over a kind of radar called LIDAR, and that's really the best for all of this object sensing and pattern sensing that we have so far. Uh, it still is, can be uh, tricked or has problems with, with rain sometimes or snow or or other kinds of glare conditions, but LiDAR is currently quite expensive. Um, you know, when Google was outfitting these uh, Lexus cars to go all around California, mm -hmm. I think it was estimated to something like two hundred fifty to $300,000 of technology per vehicle. Oh, jeez. So, um, <laughs> that's, that's not going to sell well on individual that's vehicles. Not gonna, that's not going to sell no. well. So, you know, if, if LiDAR is what it takes to reach this level four um, type of perception of the environment, uh, it'll be quite a while maybe before that is affordable for private individuals. Uh, some of these are reasons why people think that the early adopters as the technology advances may be uh, companies that are transportation intermediaries or um, can do a fleet kind of approach. So everything mm -hmm. from an Uber or a Lyft, which could be an early adopter to, um, you know, commercial trucking, where they have... Uh, perhaps a incentive to make the large capital investment in the equipment if it gets them a lot of savings in terms of safety and yeah. aerodynamics and the like. It would seemingly also be an area where you could, you know, if the, if, if the testing of the technology ends up continuing to be pretty good, that maybe you would even see more VC money come in, in, coming into the, these types of projects, especially if, if they're smaller ones, maybe not necessarily the Googles of the world. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to see a lot of VC investment because uh, many different Silicon Valley firms are involved. There's some uh, prominent uh, 
companies whose technologies are being used, uh, like Autopilot, I believe, is uh, pretty heavily dependent on technology from Mobileye, which is an Israeli tech startup. Um, I just read that Tony Fidel, who uh, was the CEO of Nest, former Apple guy who yep. worked with Steve Jobs and then founder of Nest, which was part of Google, he got pushed out as CEO. He's already co-CEO or some other kind of uh, senior person at a uh, autonomous car startup. I haven't even been able to look look it up. That's how recent that news is. So, um, so yes, I think we will see uh, a lot of innovation. I, and I, it's kind of interesting um, as I think about the usual dance between or standoffs between the auto industry and regulators. Uh, you know, auto companies have been very resistant to safety technology over the years, going back to seatbelts and then to airbags and have only reluctantly complied also with things, Clean Air Act kinds of things, and, you know, right up to Volkswagen in the present. I wonder if there's going to be a, a bit more confluence uh, of interest here between car companies and regulators. First of all, given the overwhelming public safety benefits that can arise from adopting this technology. Right. Um, secondly, because standards which uh, could be developed in some kind of cooperation between you know federal regulators and 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 various automakers uh, will really help the advance of uh, certainly any technology that depends on interoperability right so yep. different cars operating on the same kind of software the software industry and internet generally have years and years and years now of experience developing standards within the industry in a very op you know open standards that everybody can share in, which uh, help network effects and help innovation go faster. The auto industry doesn't have much of a track record of that. They've had a lot of ex of closed uh, network kinds of experiments that have not really gone very far. So in the general question of what happens when Detroit meets Silicon Valley, I think one is, will we get uh, a better and faster movement towards the open standards that allow innovation yet support, uh, you know, regulatory goals and, uh, you know, rapid diffusion and testing of this technology. You know, it, it's interesting because it, we've talked about the fact that, you know, we're still quite a ways away from, from really having this out on the road. And you mentioned about trying to find cities uh, where uh, this testing can continue and, and having some dedicated infrastructure as a, as a key ingredient. To have the type of, of dedicated in infrastructure in some cases will require quite an investment by cities or states, or, you know, whatever it is at, at what level. And as we very well know, the problems with infrastructure and funding infrastructure are very well documented in a lot of cities and states. State of New Jersey, you know, talking about upping the gas tax so right. that they can have they can have a replenishment of the of the highway trust fund in that state. So, you know, there's still a lot of uh, of infrastructure issues that, that have to be dealt with here. Oh, for sure. And and uh, I, when you see debates and really big gaps between how fast people say the technology will be available and some people say five years and some people say 30 years, yeah. uh, a lot of times it's how they're thinking about the issues of both regulation and infrastructure support. I mean, yes, if we can't uh, have the political consensus to fix bridges that are crumpling and, and uh and unsafe highways and things like that. How are we going to raise the massive amounts of funds to have dedicated infrastructure? So I think, you know, all of these 
level five, uh, back to that terminology, is probably where you need the, the most smart infrastructure. Yeah. Maybe we'll never get to smart infrastructure. Maybe what we'll get to eventually is a pretty good standard vehicle-to-vehicle system of communication. And over time, as old cars are retired and new ones are sold, they'll all be equipped with these transponders. They'll all be using the same uh, way of communicating with each other. That'll make the the, the whole system safer. Uh, they also talk about 3D mapping, uh, mapping with you know the kind by the kinds of mapping companies we now know do navigation at a level of detail that's vastly greater than what we have now. That actually can pick up uh, precise locations of street signs, of stoplights, um, notices places that the breakdown lanes get smaller, uh, or can pick up patterns where you know people. Uh, regularly go into the breakdown line, lane, I don't know, to get around traffic. Right. Uh, all of the combination of physical idiosyncrasies with usage idiosyncrasies that would let you truly make the software smart about how to guide a given car through a given route. Um, there's 3D mapping for, you know, some places, and Google was bringing that in to help them test their vehicles in California. But that's another big investment to get there. It's not the same kind of investment as uh, you know, building dedicated highways and, and hardwiring in um, communications infrastructure. Uh, I wanted to touch on a story that I saw yesterday about Fiat Chrysler paying hackers to try and find bugs in the technologies in their system. Yeah. And, and, and I guess this is, this is a more common thing than, than I thought, because I was taken aback by it. I was like, really? Wow. You know, and, they're, and they're paying them a decent amount of money to kind of break down their cars and, and see if there are problems there. Yeah, I think it's become pretty common in the software world to, to, to pay hackers to, to, you know, professional hackers for good. Um, to find weaknesses in your system, and there are firms now that do this as opposed to I think there's also still a uh, way to recruit these folks uh, more in a more open source kind of way. Chrysler uh, made headlines when Wired magazine ran a feature showing how some of these couple of these professional hackers had figured out how to get in and control uh, Jeep Cherokees um, yeah. software. Yeah through some flaw in their, um, some feature that Sprint provided to allow, you know, internet and other kind of connectivity to the car. And the, the, it's quite uh, chilling reading, actually, uh, this Wired reporter, you know, is in the car driving down a highway, and um, somewhere these two engineers uh, tell it to, you know, change lanes, put on the brake unexpectedly, and then at a certain point they actually turn off the engine on the guy. Huh. And, um, you know, it's all terrifying, of course, to have this happen. And he, he knew that they were going to somehow be manipulating his ride. Imagine that happening if you had no idea. So right, right. it's one of these new areas where the auto companies, well, A, it's why they've always wanted to have completely closed systems for any software they do. You know, there's just no way into it. Um, secondly, it's the reason that there have to be really strong firewalls between whatever software allows connectivity to the outside world for getting your email and and the like and whatever controls the brakes the steering the all the all the control features but you know the, the because the car companies don't have the same expertise in software they they need uh, all the help they can get to make it hack proof 
Uh, f- a final couple of moments with uh, John Paul McDuffie of the Wharton School. Uh, the the recent moves by automakers to get involved with Lyft and, and Uber and the, the leasing of cars. Uh, I don't think it's a surprise that, that a company like GM or one of the other automakers would want to get into this space. How do you see that all playing out in the, in the next couple of years? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, move to see these investments. Um, the first characterization usually here is that it's a hedge. You know, So GM is expecting maybe the sales of cars are going to go down because more people are going to decide they don't need to own a car. They can just use Uber or Lyft, so why not invest in Lyft to get some of the upside? The short-term play, though, as you say, which is very sensible, is that you have all these drivers that Lyft and Uber are trying to invite into being contract drivers. They do want them to have new cars, clean cars, safe cars. Uh, So Uber has already been uh, helping people find their way to to good good deals for purchases. And I think Lyft and GM want to do sort of almost a rental car thing. So if you want to drive a couple hours for Lyft and you don't want to use your own car, you don't have a car, you could go to a place, rent a GM vehicle, and do your Lyft shift and then drop it off. So um, that that's... I think also sensible because in terms of everybody looking at half a million dollars, half a billion dollars being spent on this, um, that looks like a short-term payoff uh, for uh, all the vehicle, you know, excess vehicles that GM produces that they might usually sell to rental car, car companies. So, um, uh, but I also think there's definitely a strong component of, of, of work with your, uh, your future competitor so you understand the exact nature of the threat. Great to have you again on the show, John Paul. We will see you on campus here in the near future. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks, Dan. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.